0: Hello, here's Roland Grappo from Masterplan and you're listening to Focus on Metal.
1: Metalhead Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 341 of Focus on Metal, which uh, at this point will be called Karang episode number six. Yep, I know that Richie and I went back and forth last week whether it was five or six, but I uh, went through the archives, the yeah, archives, like a couple weeks back, and uh, and indeed this is episode number six of our Karang special. So this week our guest is Sylvie Simmons. Yep one of the uh, still preeminent rock journalists around today. She's been around since the 70s doing all kinds of stuff. Started off in Sounds Magazine before moving over to Kerrang! But for uh, you U.S. listeners of a certain age group like my own, probably remember Sylvie for her writing in uh, Cream Magazine, which was definitely one of the uh, better rock magazines to buy back in the day here in the States. So, uh, of course, you uh, European folks... Probably know her best for Kerrang, but uh, U.S. folks know her best for Cream Magazine. Still in the game today, doing all types of writing as well as uh, doing little book tours for some of her stuff. But uh, primarily she's involved with, uh, with Mojo right now doing all kinds of writing for them. So as discussed last week, this one is going to be a two-parter. During the break, Richie had gotten a hold of Sylvie, had a really good interview, and as I indicated last week, probably one of the best interviews that he's done. Really brings out her personality in the interview. But uh, towards the end of it, you know, he talks about... uh, whether you know calling her back or whatever and she you know graciously offers to answer anything else he's got and as indicated again last week that turned into yet another hour-long conversation with sylvie and all this stuff is really good she's a great storyteller remembers a whole bunch of stuff and whatever she doesn't remember her journals and records certainly can facilitate in getting us down to uh the nitty-gritty of the story so uh Again, two-parter for this one because lots of great stuff from Sylvie about, uh, about Kerrang!, about the bands, and I think that everyone's going to really enjoy uh, both parts of the interview. Haven't decided yet whether or not we're going to play these babies back-to-back or we're going to stick some other content in between or not. So next week uh, could be Kerrang! number seven. It could be something different because uh, we do have some other interviews that we are building up as well. Uh, I don't know, we're, uh, what, two weeks back from break, and already the audio is coming fast and furious. And uh, also this week, since there's so much information that Sylvie wants to talk about, I didn't want to cut any of it out, and I didn't want to leave this thing running way too long. So no music again this week. We're just talking to Sylvie, and I hope you guys enjoy that one. But uh, like I said, there's just so much stuff. I don't want this to get too long, so decided no music this week. Just talk. Maybe there'll be, like, about a half a second of music in there somewhere. So I don't want you to call me out and say, hey, you said no music. But, uh, again, just want to run this one with just uh, Richie and Sylvie talking. And uh, I'm going to start that one right now.
2: Hello. Is that Sylvie? It is.
0: Hi, it's uh, Richie here from Focus on Metal.
2: Hey, Richie, I'm so sorry I didn't get your other call. My appointment this morning ran late and I just got in.
0: No, no, that's cool. You're you're probably out of breath, are you?
2: <laughs> I, I just grabbed a glass of water. Otherwise, I'll record you straight tra- tra- back on here and record last thing. But I'm ready now.
0: I've been doing this radio show for about four years, and every year we do a project. And this year mm-hmm. I decided to do one on Kerrang! magazine in the 80s. Yay! And I've got, so far I've talked to Malcolm Dome, Stefan Shirazi, Howard Johnson, Derek Oliver, and I'm missing someone. Ah, oh, that's universe. all
2: you need. You don't, uh, Jeff Barton <laughs> is the one you've got to have because well, he's the founder.
0: I am, well, I have Jeff's email, and I, I will definitely have him on. I've, I've got a ton of names, to be honest.
2: Yeah, well, I think if you, you know, you've got us and you've got uh, Jeff, and you'll get the story probably between us. <laughs>
0: yeah. Did you have a journalistic background before you actually got into Sounds Magazine?
2: Well, I I was a rock writer. I think journalistic might be too strong a a (laughs) crazier term for it because I don't think anybody went to journalism school. It was if you could sort of stay up and drink enough and then get some copy in by the next day, you know? But yes, I'd been writing since 1977 when I went to L.A. and became the correspondent for a magazine called Sounds. And Kerrang! began as a spin-off of Sounds magazine.
0: Yeah, now... what? What, were you moving to L.A. anyway, or did the sounds job require you to move there?
2: No, actually, I went on my own volition, but with the help of a, a photographer, a rock photographer, who I was seeing for a while. And he was talking about setting up an office in L.A. and with a complete sort of bravado of youth and having no skills, whatever, as a photographer. I said, oh, I'll do it. And so he fronted me the plane fare. And, and so I came out to L.A. and stayed for a long time to seven years and one of the first things that happened when I was there was that uh, Steely Dan came through town with their album Aja and I was offered an interview things were very much easier back then as far as access if you said you were a rock journalist you know pretty much you were one and there wasn't that many that they kind of really cared um, I, I sort of said I would do this interview they didn't ask who for and then I called up All of the British weeklies that were around at the time, there was four, there was Enemy, Melody Maker, Sounds, and Record Mirror. And I asked them if they wanted the interview, and the one that said yes was Sounds. And from that moment on, I was Sounds as a person in LA.
0: So you got the interview without even being uh, like, with a magazine.
3: You were in the no, in England, rules? no,
2: I hadn't. In England, I'd done a couple of things for a pop magazine, and so I guess I was on their list as somebody who was a legitimate writer of magazines. But funnily enough, LA wasn't a very big kind of rock city when I arrived. Of course, all the bands would come through because it had the huge venues, but there wasn't like this huge number of rock journalists there. But unlike New York,
0: yeah, yeah. Now, t- describe to me what Sounds Magazine was, was like, because I've n- I never actually got, I was born in 71, so I never actually had a copy of Sounds. And I got into, I got into Kerrang! probably around the mid, mid to late 80s. Was, was that like, like, I'll give you a crude um, example, was it like the, the English equivalent of Rolling Stone, or, or what sort of magazine was it?
2: No, really what it was, it was one of what we called the inkies because the ink used to rub off on your hands when you read it, you know, it was that kind of cheap black ink and black and white stuff, no color pictures in it. And it was the size of a a regular, like a broadsheet newspaper, you know, like the Times used to be, I think that's probably shrunk now, but you know, when you actually sort of had to open a paper, it was quite big, maybe not quite as big as an unopened Times, but somewhere between a regular magazine and an unopened Times. And it was a rock magazine, and it had a fairly wide remit on it. I think it was writing more about heavy rock than some of the other magazines. And in me, it tended to be a bit more kind of the trendy things that were going on. But everything was covered in sound, you know, and you could actually get bands' deals, you know, new bands' deals by writing huge long articles on them in sound. It was very kind of tolerant of the new and accepting of, of very cool old old sort of bands like Black Sabbath. In fact... One of my early assignments with them I think it must have been 1978 was to go on the road with Black Sabbath and that was the uh, the last tour they did before they broke up
0: yeah so how many days on the road were you with Sabbath?
2: You know, I don't remember. I remember that the piece in Sounds ran over two weeks. It was that long. That was the other thing about those papers back then. It was pre-digital. And, of course, nobody was using computers. It was all typewriters. So you couldn't really do word counts very well. Now, you know, when I write for Mojo, it's like we want 150 words or we want 1,200 words or 6,000 words is more like Mojo. But you kind of have the exact amount and they know how it's going to look on the page. But it seemed a bit more, it had a sort of fanzine y kind of feel to it, though it wasn't a fanzine. You know, it was a, a magazine with a proper uh, sort of business uh, plan. and if you're not planning, that's probably the thing. It was a proper business and it was run by a publishing company.
0: Yeah. Now, now, when you go on the road with Sabbath for a couple of days on end, do you have access to all the band members and do you have full access?
2: Yeah. And uh, I guess when, you know, it's happened before, I went on the road, only very briefly, but with The Clash in 79, and I only really had access to Mick and I guess it was Topper who was playing drums, just because the others didn't want to talk. So fair enough, or I might have got maybe one quote from Joe Strummer or something. So you're just given a situation and you would get on with it. And uh, they fly you out back then because the music business had so much money that it would just send journalists anywhere, whether you like the band or not. And, you know, it seems like it's corruption because they're paying the fares and everything. But half of the time, there would be a negative piece of the result of it. You know, it was one of those things where they they kind of seemed to quite, I don't know whether it was benignly tolerate the press or, or what, you know, put up with us. But we were given a huge amount of access and there'd be all of these kind of different parties and free tickets and free clothes. That's what I remember most about the kind of Sounds to Kerrang era was you could kind of not only get sort of food and drink from the band in a way, you would get clothed by them. You know, there'd be the jackets and the hats and the T-shirts, you know. And in Ronnie Dio's case, I think I even got a pair of sweatpants with Dio written down on the side, nice. obviously many times because it's not a long name, so. <laughs> yeah, nice,
0: nice. Um, now, when, when, um, when you go on the road with the bands, um, like, was there many female journalists at the time Um, I'm probably thinking not. Um, There weren't
2: that many, but I think there were probably more in Britain than there were in the U.S. I mean, now I'll probably get them all saying, we were here too. I think most magazines had somebody, you know, they had their girl. (laughs) That was sort of vaguely the attitude of some magazines, but I never came across that kind of sexism at all with uh, with, um, sounds. I was just there, I was giving them work, and they were running it. When I got back to England, finally, it was in 1984. I I kind of encountered it a little bit with a new editor they had there, and at that point I left and just continued writing for Kerrang. Where there was, I could, never, you know, it's heavy metal is meant to be sexist, but it was probably the least sexist of of all of the genres that yeah. I uh, had dealings with.
0: Yeah. Now the bands you wrote for in in sounds, um, what sort of music fan were you? Like, who were your favorite bands at the time?
2: Well, I guess I had pretty eclectic taste. I mean, it wasn't, you know, heavy rock was probably the top of the list. Really, I guess, uh, you know, I grew up on Beatles and Stones and Kinks and Who and the great British bands. And then I kind of, by the time I'd hit my kind of mid-teens, I was getting nuts about Americans and in one case Canadian bands, which was like Leonard Cohen for the Canadian. But I would be in love with Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell. And that kind of, that movement of that was going on in America in the early 70s so most of my record collection that wasn't Beatles stuff was taken up with american bands i liked heavy rock too and i really loved um led zeppelin of course yeah but when i got out to america it just happened to be that about a few years into my being or two years into being there there was such a big explosion of heavy metal in la that uh i kind of started doing a lot of that
0: yeah and did did you did you like doing that sort of music? Like, Was that like an acquired taste for you, or, or how did that work for you?
2: I did like it. I loved the spectacle of the shows more than anything else, and just the craziness of the bands. And so I did get into it. I mean, I was certainly no real expert on it when I started, but it was kind of getting to know what was good and what was useless as you went along you know you just did because you just heard it so often you know you got sent so many lps that you'd be playing and you go to so many shows you're five six a week that you soon realize the ones that are really good they've got it
0: yeah Now, now when you're doing an interview for sounds what what research would you do like what what to you would be a good interview
2: well, in the beginning, again, it was, there was no internet. So it was actually hard to do a certain amount of research. You know, you did what you could. And sometimes you'd have to go to the library, you know, and look through microfilms of, you know, old Rolling Stones, uh, copies of old Rolling Stones magazine. But uh, generally, they, they would send you a bio and uh, a press release and a photo. Those always came in in the package along with the record. And you just read that and mostly you just you live that sort of life so you're always reading about people, you know? So if it was a new artist, you'd go in with the usual curiosity, you know, that you want to know about them, you know, what they got that nobody else has. Why Why do they exist on the planet? But then when bands, you know, that you've endlessly interviewed, you know, every year an album comes out and you go to interview them, you've got much more meat in that kind of article because you know them, you know what they have said before you, you know, you know what they've been doing with their music, so it's a v- more interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. otherwise, you just you just go in in a way as a rock fan. You really are curious, and you know, and as much as possible, you do your research. So you don't ask stupid questions because the best interviews are the ones where you kind of almost know more about them than they know about themselves. You can get to really interesting things.
0: Yeah, did you find out that- Mostly the musicians were okay to interview? Like, did did you have some really tough ones in the beginning because you weren't used to doing it?
2: Yeah, you had a few of those in the beginning. I mean, and some people are just difficult. And Divas, even, for example, later on in the 2000s when I was interviewing Lou Reed, (laughs) it was a complete hemorrhoid, you know, (laughs) total pain in the butt. And so, you know, even, you know, somebody's going to be difficult with interviewers, they're going to be difficult. And I remember one time actually early on when I interviewed Frank Zappa and, and I would loved Frank Zappa's music, you know, and I had his albums and I think I knew a fair bit about him. And we had this conversation and he was just going nuts at me and said it, I think it was because I was British and he'd had some accident in, I think it was in London, maybe at the the old Fenstree Park Astoria or Rainbow Theatre as it became, and was pulled off the stage by somebody and got badly hurt. And then I interviewed him again about a year later and he couldn't be nicer and invited me over to his studio and was showing me all sorts of things he was working on. So, you know, most of them were really nice though.
0: Yeah. And
2: sort of tolerant. And and I guess, in a way, there was always that cliche that music journalists were like these sort of spotty boys with, you know, (laughs) palm room glasses who would go in there trying to be more macho in a way than the bands, even though they clearly weren't. And yeah. I think sometimes they, they felt that was competitive and maybe I, my approach might have been different. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Was there one interview you did where you, you looked at it and you said, you know what? I'm getting really good at doing this.
2: I never felt that way because it was just so ongoing. I mean, the stuff that we did back then, it wasn't like, say, a mojo piece where I'll spend three weeks or something on it. But you were just turning this stuff out day after day, you know, I kind of look sometimes at what I was doing in one year or something in my little black book where I noted everything that I sent off and nothing else about it other than what it was and who I I wrote it for and a little tick when they paid me, which was always the most important thing, (laughs) trying to chase them up. And it's just insane. It'll be sort of writing five pieces a week, you know, interviews a week.
0: Yeah, did you, was there someone who gave you a lot of advice or someone you looked up to in particular that was a really good interviewer you thought?
2: Um, no, not at all. You, you just kind of got on with it. I mean, the way that interviews were in the beginning is that uh, you used to get sort of maybe 45 minutes. That seemed to be the standard amount of time, 30 to 45 minutes with the band. And they would do a press day. And you would come into the hotel room or into, you know, somewhere if it was going to be the record company or or maybe sometimes a a restaurant. But you get a certain amount of time with them, then you're done, it's finished, and last question, bye, and then somebody else comes in. So it was quite a, you know, quite an ordeal when you think about it for the artists. They're just stuck there, probably being asked the same questions. Over and over again. Yeah. I, so uh, you know that was really how it how it generally went down. Yeah. And the, then usually because it's a weekly, your deadlines would be really fast. And for most of the time, we didn't have even fax machines back then.
0: Yeah.
3: You know,
2: you had to stick it in the post or read it over the phone to some yeah. poor, long-suffering person writing it down.
0: Yeah. One of the things I find about doing this show, and I've been doing it for four years now, is, and someone asked me this the other day: How do you avoid? asking the the same boring questions and in a way you can't because if they're promoting something everybody has to ask them the same questions um maybe you can if you know the person a little bit better you can ask them different things but you, you're right if someone is sitting in a room all day they're at, and they're doing 10 or 15 interviews they are going to be asked the same questions there's nothing there's nothing they can do about it
3: Mm-mm.
0: so like did you ever get like anyone like being really annoyed Oh no not again not that same question or anything like that (laughs) that ever happened to you
2: i'm sure it did in the beginning i don't remember usually it's the way you try and get around it or you get to have a really good conversation going and then at one point you say well you know i've got to ask this because you know you've probably got an official answer give it to me and you kind of give it to them like that and they understand that you're having to do a job and you know you're going to have to ask about this particular thing but um you know, you kind of try and make it either something amusing or, you know, just a sort of way of, of trying to say, that I acknowledge that you have been answering this all day and you must be sick to death of it, you know. Yeah. But what's your give me your official answer. And then once you've got the official answer, at some point later in the discussion, with that bit of information, you can kind of couch it somewhat differently and then get back and, and expand on that uh, that answer, you know.
0: Yeah. Did, did you find when you were writing with sounds that... Um, you could pick and choose the assignments or was it a combination of them sending you somewhere and you picking them?
2: In the beginning, I don't think I said no to anything because it was, it was also great and such great fun. And like I said, you were doing, I was writing, you know, probably every day of the week, getting something out because I had a, a column, a weekly column called Hollywood High, so that I'd have to put all the gossip and the party stuff in and maybe shows I'd be reviewing and I'd say four or five interviews a week in some cases. So there was so much going on that you just did it and later you can get a bit more blasé. And plus I was also writing for other magazines at that time. I was the correspondent for a Japanese magazine and a German magazine. And, you know, you kind of give them the same interview but slightly rewritten in the style of, of what they want you know, some want a question and answer form, others want a narrative. But it was just really like this this time just flew by. It was one big rock and roll party the whole time.
0: Yeah. When I spoke to Stefan Shirazi, he mentioned just what you mentioned there that you might have you might do one interview and then you might give it to a couple of different magazines. He mm-hmm. I asked him, was it difficult to do that? Because one magazine you didn't want the same thing in both did you ever find it difficult to to do that as well?
2: No, not at all, because, again, it's back to the era. It, there was Nothing was digitized back then. For example, now if I, I do a really big interview with, let's say, Neil Young, I could have sold it back then to pretty much any country in every country. But now somebody would have taken it written in English and put it up on the Internet even though they don't have permission to do it, people would take photos or they'd actually sometimes handwrite the whole, not handwrite, I mean, type in the whole thing. Yeah. Clearly, my brain is not in digital mode today either. <laughs> and so but but so they were quite happy to have it in different countries because they wouldn't have seen it. You know, they wouldn't have seen a copy of Sounds or if it was imported, it would probably be a late, you know, three months later. So there were all sorts of sort of syndication agencies set up where you could do that. So what it meant was that, you know, when you're a rock journalist, basically you're living on, you know, you're not paid much money. Why should they pay as much money? We're having so much fun. And so you'd have to try and get your rent paid by doing one interview and selling it to several different sources. Maybe your first one would always be the magazine that you are mainly associated with, like my case, Sounds. And then, you know, basically everything else is free. Your concert tickets, you know, you go to clubs, they give you a drink tab. So... You can have kalura and cream and peanuts for free, and that's entirely all of your food groups taken care of. You know? <laughs> and they dress you, put more good you on. and yeah. you're a kid, you know, you're not thinking about, oh, I need to pay a mortgage. You're just
0: yeah. having the
2: time of your life.
0: Yeah. Tell me, as a fan, who was the first musician you interviewed that you were a really big fan of? He's maybe a hero <laughs> to you.
2: Hmm. Well, I was a big fan of both Steely Dan and uh, Frank Zappa. Probably the first one, actually, let me think about this, would have been Willie DeVille of Mink DeVille. I remember having that Mink DeVille album and just, you know, just sort of sinking into it. I loved it so much. And so I really wanted to interview Willie DeVille, even though he wasn't a huge star, you know? Oh. So I, that was probably one. And I guess the. And George Harrison, yeah, I guess I should say George Harrison. Yeah. yeah.
0: George he was a
2: huge Beatle fan, so that was a bit scary. And it was in the the era when he wasn't suffering falls very easily, <laughs> so I don't know if I was his best interviewee.
0: Was that an in-person interview or a phone? on
2: Yeah, in-person. Nearly everything was in-person back then, mostly because I was in a city, like I said, where they did promotion. So there were, you know, record companies based there and they'd have an international division back then. So international press division. So if you were a correspondent for a foreign magazine, you got as much access as the, the sort of domestic prestige, you know, the American prestige.
0: Yeah. So so let's, t- let's talk a little bit about Kerrang. Um, yeah. When did you figure out that maybe Sounds was going to do a spin-off? Was it a long time before it actually happened? Was there a lot of was there a rumor in the air that, that you heard about?
2: Well, you know, I was I had my own little territory out in L. A. <clears throat> Excuse me, I had my own little territory out in L. A. So I didn't get back to England much, and occasionally a journalist from Sounds or whatever would come out and what we call a league. You know, you're getting a paid trip somewhere nice, like going out to L. A. And you could sit in the sun at a good hotel, and you just do an interview and you come back they come out on a leg, and I'd hear little bits and pieces here and there. But I hadn't heard too much about it as far as I can remember. So Jeff Barton had become editor of sounds and he was a real fan of Nawabum, you know, new wave of British heavy metal, huge fan of it. And so I'd be sent often to do things with Iron Maiden and, you know, those kind of bands. So it kind of made sense, I guess, that, you know, somebody at the publishing company thought, hey, these bands are getting a lot of attention. We should have a spin off magazine. And so uh, Jeff asked me to do it, and it was, yeah, fine, great. And uh, so I was the L.A. correspondent for Kerrang. But for uh, some time I wrote under the name of Laura Canyon because they didn't want to have, you know, they wanted to separate the two magazines in a way, as yeah. far as their writers were concerned. So I was Laura Canyon in a Bromwick.
0: <laughs> you were still writing for Sounds and for Kerrang. Yeah. Which were the you didn't have the same interviews going, in
2: you know, the same. Features. Oh no, 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 no! I don't think I ever did that. Unless what sometimes happened is Kerrang wanted a little piece, you know, just a couple of questions for some special section, and so I could do that for them, you know. Yeah. So. But generally, it was if it was the sounds, it was the sounds, you know.
0: Yeah. So I think the first Korang was what eighty-two, eighty-one, eighty.
2: Yep. I'm trying to think if I'm seeing, I'm looking at 1981 and seeing if it's sent anything to touring at that time. So you probably know better than I do. <laughs> There's bound to be a Wikipedia on it somewhere. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I know Angus Young yeah. was on the cover.
2: Oh, yeah. I well, that's a band that I loved as well. And when I interviewed uh, AC DC with Bon Scott in it for Sounds, I, that was one I loved too. Yeah, who,
0: you interviewed Bon a couple of years before he died.
2: Yeah, it would have been. I I think it was probably about seventeen nine when I interviewed him. I'm not so sure.
0: Why wait to hell.
2: Okay. Yeah, and I think I'm just looking, I'm talking to you and looking at the same time, so I can't uh can't really do that. But here it is, eighty two, yes, eighty two. It must have been when it found it because that's the first time I've mentioned it. No, eighty one.
0: Eighty one. Did you, have, did you have an interview in the first do you remember? Did you have an interview in the first issue of a prominent
2: one? Probably. I'm trying to think actually. And um, see I'm kinda of not doing well for your radio right no, now. No no no. Trying to research and look <laughs> at the same time. But I'm seeing where it is, yeah. I mean here it is. They're all for Kerrang and these are from wow, June or earlier. Yeah, so certainly by mid um by mid eighty one it was going. Yeah, And I've got here, what I've got in this, all at the same month, I had like it's an interview with Sticks, Cozy Powell, and, uh, no, that was something else. Sticks and Randy Hansen. Ha! Huh.
3: Okay.
0: Wow.
2: And then next one, Trevor Rabin, and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, no.
0: So, no.
2: Motorhead, yeah, Motorhead after Motorhead.
0: that. Oh, you interviewed Lemmy?
2: Oh, Lemmy was. That that broke my heart when he passed away. It really did. And um, you probably. Hello, sirens. Yes, we
0: are.
3: Full of police
2: out here. Yeah, um, you probably heard that from Stefan, too. I mean, Lemmy was just about the nicest person in rock and roll. He really was a great guy, a real good human. And so over the years, you know, spent a lot of time interviewing him, hanging with him, and. It was always a delight. He was such a good guy.
0: Yeah, you probably ran ran into him sometimes in LA, did you? Because he apparently he hung around the Rainbow every time he was. Oh, eating. he was
2: always at the Rainbow. The last time I interviewed him was at the Rainbow was the Mojo interview for Sound. Uh, for, sorry, for Mojo, <laughs> Mojo interview for Mojo, and uh, it was one of those nice long interviews going through everything. Yeah. So I think that was our last sit down for an interview. But yeah, you always run into him. Yeah, I, mean.
0: I believe I believe he was very well read. He loved reading books.
2: He was. He was a big history buff. You know, he was a huge uh, collector of World War Two stuff as well.
0: Yeah. Did he ever show it to yeah.
2: you? Oh yeah, I saw his stuff. I went up into his home and his apartment. The one in England first, and you know, he rented in London and the one out out in LA. So yeah, he was really interested in that. And it's strange because people think, yeah, he loved the Nazis, but no, he was an absolute sweetheart. He was just fascinated. Yeah. Absolutely fascinated with the history.
0: Now in 81 in LA, um, who were the big hard rock bands? Because you're talking pre-Motley Crue and pre probably pre-Rat and all these bands. Mm-hmm. So Y&T, would they be one of the big ones?
2: I'm having a look to see who I was interviewing. Well, Scorpions were obviously doing quite well, I guess, because they were coming through town and I was interviewing... Michael Schenker is on the list there. But you're right, there wasn't a huge amount that year. I was There was there was a lot of that kind of arena rock, you know, groups that I actually didn't like, but I interviewed like Styx and Journey.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Oreo Speedwagon, you know, just looking at my list of things here that I was doing. So, yeah, none of that looks that interesting. But also the punk bands were coming through town. Okay. And so the ones who weren't talking so much in... The UK because they had it with the press were trying to break America, so they'd be coming out too.
0: Yeah,
3: all bands
2: like you know Madness, you know.
0: I I love Madness. I love Madness.
2: Great band. Yeah, looking at eighty one, it looks really boring for interviews as far as the (laughs) people it's Blue Oyster Cult and um, Journey.
3: Yeah.
2: Stevie Nicks, Frank Marino. So yeah, not that much. Triumph was another one. Sammy Hagar. Okay. Ozzy, of course. So, Billy Squires. This gives you an idea of people who were coming through LA in 81.
0: Tell me about your dealings with Ozzy at, at interviews, because, you know, he's supposed to be one of the most down-to-earth guys going, but when he, you can get him when he's sober and when he's not so sober. You you get both?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been, uh, interviewed Ozzy lots of times. On that last... The first interview I did with him was when I went on the road with them um, on the tour... Where at the end of the tour they kicked him, Ozzy out of the band, and the opening act of that tour was Van Halen, who were just coming up. So they, by the end of the tour, they'd completely kicked Black Sabbath's butt, and they became you know the big band. Yeah. it was a very very interesting tour. Um, Ozzy struck me as very fragile. You know, I remember him saying like uh, that. You know, when he rattled when he walked, he was taking so many pills. But he wasn't bombastic in any way. I mean, this is a front person of a band. You'd think that they would be, you know, very big and loud. But he wasn't really. He had a sort of shyness to him in a way. He was a very quiet talker. Rambled quite a lot. I remember that. But, you know, I think he realized that things were going a bit too far and that, you know, he was going to lose the band to Tony Iommi, who was a much more sort of forceful kind of person. I remember talking to Tony. At that time and, and realizing that, you know, the kind of personality differences between the two of them. But the next time I saw Ozzy really for any length of time was to do the first interview with him, which must have been the sound, I guess it was the sound. After um, he sort of decided to go solo when he did his first solo album. And uh, he was being managed by by Sharon Arden, as she was then, Mm -hmm. the daughter of Don Arden, who managed Black Sabbath. And so he had somebody looking after him and also was in love with him. So I think he was in a much kind of more positive state.
0: Yeah. Did you get to interview Randy Rhodes at all?
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, It was so sweet. And I think that broke their hearts when, you know, he went. Yeah. He was a sweet, really enthusiastic guy. He was like a kind of—I know he was like a. I guess it was kind of puppy dog kind of guy. You know, as Doberman puppy dogs, just sort of really sweet and and brilliant player.
0: Yeah. Oh, yes, fantastic. Iconic player. Mm-hmm. And, um, what about Ronnie James Dio? You mentioned there.
2: You, you... Yeah, I, I spoke to Dio quite a few times. Um, he got mad at me because I'd mentioned his height in a story. So. <laughs> <laughs> he was really happen, pissed off. Other than the height thing, you know, he was a very serious guy and he was a good interviewee because he spoke at great length about his work and what he did. Um, I wasn't, I didn't kind of warm to him as, as much as I did to others, and it probably wasn't his fault. He just, you know, just wasn't that much fun to hang with.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, so I might as well ask you it now, Sylvie. Did, did you ever do another review? maybe a live review or an album review where it came back to haunt you that the person actually went went after you for, for a bad review?
2: It happens once in a while, you know, and then, um, you know, sometimes they fall out with you and won't speak to you ever again. Other times, two albums down the line, they'll say, you know, you were right. That wasn't our greatest moment. That happens less, but it does happen once in a while. But yeah, that does happen. But I found it doesn't happen so much with the really big bands you know the really big bands brush it off I guess they get to that point where they've seen it or heard it all and so it doesn't bother them anymore but the ones that have gotten to me really is when I've written a review of something and maybe I've only spent an afternoon with the album or something or I was in a bad mood at the show and you give it a bad review and then you think afterwards I was so wrong yeah. And then at those times, you do try and somehow in a future review or a future piece, just mention I screwed up. You know, I said that this was their worst and it's actually their best.
0: Is there any that comes to mind?
2: Now, I can't think of a particular one oh. right now. but
0: Okay. You know. Who'd normally go after you? Would it be the band members or the management? Um, a bit of both.
2: Yeah. A bit of both you know but most of the time they tended to love what you did with them you know and how you presented them because you don't go into this kind of job if you call it that you know this life this lifestyle really wanting to slag off bands you know occasionally you do but really the whole point is you you love what they're doing you're just obsessed by music and you know immersed in this world the whole time just at the different side of the fence you know so you're not really there to shoot them in the foot you know but you do pick them up on some things i remember I, i can tell you one story uh i went to interview stevie Nicks at the house that she had that was at marina del rey overlooking the beach And at that time, I was kind of getting to the kind of punky thing, kind of punky leather thing. And I kind of went there and she was not ready, you know, to be interviewed at that moment. And I was sitting there waiting and uh, watching her made iron all this chiffon. And so I kind of was writing this snarky, you know, intro in my head, you know, which actually did come out in the piece. And. Once she kind of talked to me, I, I kind of warmed to her, you know. And we we had a great interview, but I still had left the snarky thing in at the beginning about the you know, the chiffon, <laughs> miles of chiffon of this poor maid. And uh, she came up to me, I guess it was backstage at uh, the Whiskey A Go-Go, and Hart were up there for so, some reason. I can't imagine they were playing the whiskey unless it was a special event party or something but uh, she came over as I was talking to Anne Wilson at Heart and she just waited and took me aside and she said, she didn't tell me else, she said, Sylvie, we girls in rock have to stick together.
3: <laughs> so
2: it was a little telling off and, you know, probably well deserved because there was no reason for me to put that in, you know?
0: Yeah, at least you knew she and read it. the
2: piece though. Yeah, I guess so and I guess back then, you know, everybody was seemed to me to be, who had any interest in music towards reading the magazines because, They're such different kind of magazines than they are now.
0: Yeah. Now, you mentioned you were on the road with Sabbath when Van Halen opened for them. Um, Did Uh you get to interview the Van Halen guys at all?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, what you did is you just interviewed them anyway. It was there they were on the road, you hung out with them. And David Lee Roth is such a character, of course, that you, of course you're going to sit and talk to him. And then you go, can I tape this? And so you have a whole bunch of taped interviews. And then you go back to sounds and say, hey, I've got this interview with Anne Halen and Warner Brothers are going big on them. And they absolutely kick Sabbath's butt, you know. And so they go, yeah. Generally, it was always, yes. Yeah, I guess because they have to get such a lot of material in, and you know, every week that you know they're pretty much they're pretty much up for anything.
0: Yeah, did, did, when you saw Van Halen now for the first time, did you think, "Wow, this band is just going to be enormous. They're going to be one of the biggest American rock bands of that era."
2: Oh yeah, I mean, you couldn't mistake it. It was mostly uh, in because of this sort of polarity of the character of David Lee Roth, which was you know larger than even larger than life. I mean, this guy was you know he'd have an audience of one and entertain them you know he was just amazing and you've got eddie van halen who was this sort of very serious sort of almost withdrawn you're introverted kind of guy playing the guitar and you forget the others yes i know they were great but this these two were just such an interesting mix and it was so much fun they had so much life you know, yeah, so much energy, which at that time Sabbath was losing a little, you know.
0: Yeah, and did you interview Van Halen over the years? Did you get to interview him for Kerrang? Further down the line.
2: Oh yeah, I was interviewing him all the time.
0: And did could you see a change in the band at all? The the, the relationships between Eddie and Dave, could you sense it?
2: Well, I think they kind of tolerated him for a lot of the time, really. But of course, as bands get bigger and bigger, and the shows get bigger, and you just get on and you do it. You know, mostly you've got such a long schedule and such an involved schedule that there's no time to do anything other than demand separate dressing rooms or something. But they kept going, and at a time when they couldn't, you know, when he was did his solo album, I guess, and and they just realized this guy's just off the scale. Really, they then changed and I got Sammy Hagar and I interviewed them too. I was never such a fan of Sammy. I like him very much as a person actually but uh, his music didn't really get me except when he was in Montrose and he was great in Montrose.
0: Yeah do you remember I just didn't
2: think he was great for for Van Halen
0: Yeah they're kind of two different bands. A lot of people you know you can either be either or I actually like both but uh, I don't see Van Halen as, with Sammy as being anything like Van Halen with Roddick. They're two different bands to me.
2: Mhm. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, you could see he was going to be big. And, and quite a lot of the time, the stuff that I was doing for either sounds or for maybe sounds more so was sort of finding bands in a way that you think this is going to be big. And that's what happened with Motley Crue when I went to see them for the first time. Yeah, And, you know, they didn't have a record deal. They didn't have anything. And it was such a ramshackle little stage set up, but they were acting as if they were an arena band, and they were dressed like the New York Dolls in spandex and scarves, and they had dyed, you know, blue black hair, the same as I did, spiky hair. Mm-hmm. And they you know, there were people starting to queue around the block for this band that nobody had ever heard of. You know, just playing a small venue like the Starwood, and that was a club that was in LA, and you know, the bands would play there, but it maybe wasn't as famous as the Roxy and the Whiskey. And you, I went in there and I I thought, this band's going to go somewhere for sure, you know. And I interviewed them for Sounds. It was just as they were about to put out or had put out their self-released debut.
0: Yeah. Did Did you find out a band like Motley Crue that you did one of the first interviews with, they actually remembered who we are further down the line?
2: That happens an awful lot. I mean, a lot of the bands that I was interviewing in the sort of late 70s and 80s became kind of friends, you know or sort of at least friendly, you know, yeah. people who would sit down and you'd have a chat before the interview or when it came to your 45 minutes as it was back then often come up, they would say, oh, no, let her stay, let her stay, you know, and you'd get more stuff or they'd meet with you later and over a beer or something, you'd get another interview. So you've you got a lot more privileges And you, but there came a point and it was around about the mid to late 80s where they kind of started getting picky, and they, could, they were so big that they could choose who they had interviews, and uh, Guns and roses were a band in that category, and their manager was making people sign all sorts of things before interviewing them.
3: Yeah.
2: and uh, so you know, it's kind of weird, yeah. but uh you kind of would um, not in, you know say, "I'm not going to sign, but because I know you, they' do the interview with you anyway. Yeah. So things kinda of got very tightened up when the band started getting a huge amount of representation, which was probably about, you know, sort of eighty three onwards.
0: Yeah, no onwards. When I spoke to Derek Oliver, um, he talked about going an interviewing journey and he could tell mm-hmm. that Steve Perry put this under raised on radio tour, he could tell that Steve Perry was kind of, you know, losing it a little bit about where he where he was in life. Do you ever interview someone, a musician, and you're looking at him and you're thinking, okay, this guy really needs help. He looks a little bit lost. Maybe the party lifestyle is getting a bit too much for him.
2: Yeah, I've seen it many times. I really have.
0: And would you mention it to them or do you feel it's not your place?
2: You know, only if I knew them so well that, we could have that conversation. I'd just say, "Are you okay? You know, you doing all right?" I mean, I wouldn't sort of just you know, stand up and say you're drinking too much or something like that. But sometimes you might mention it to, you know, the person at the record company or that, like, "Are they okay? You know, they look like they're about to fall over." But there were sometimes when you you did know that you were watching train wrecks.
0: Yeah, yeah, that must have been very difficult to try and get a. You're trying to get a feature out of the person, and the person. Is, just completely uncomfortable with everything that's happening around them.
2: Yeah, it, it's, you know, there's always all sorts of things and it did seem to sort of come to an absolute kind of apex at the end of the 80s when, you know, it was just so much money, so much access, they were, you know, the bands were just allowed to do whatever they wanted to do with nobody stepping in and saying, uh-uh, you know, and that's not just what they were doing to themselves but what they were doing to other people. Yeah, did, did, you what, know, that was a very hard thing, and I have spoken out once in a while, but you know I don't want to name names on it.
0: No, no, that's fine. I'm not asking for. I'm just wondering if it ever happened. Oh it. yeah, I mean, it does
2: because you know you you quite often let into this inner circle, you know, and it's not just the backstage thing. Though of course backstage everybody thinks is glamorous, but it's the most boring place in the world, you know. But you you back there, and really all they want to do is yeah, kind of either drink a lot, get laid, or go back to their hotel, or do all three at once. <laughs> and um, really, you know, it, they're tired, they're exhausted, and they know that they've got to get up at 5 to get on a plane the next day to do another show.
0: Yeah.
3: So
2: you can see people actually kind of wilting under it, and you can also see people, you know, being a bit abusive.
0: Yeah. Do you remember ever going on a road trip for a few days, and it didn't start well, and you're thinking to yourself, I have to spend a few days with the band on the road. What the hell mm-hmm. am I going to do? Did that ever happen to you?
2: Um, yeah, once. And that was a weird one. And It was, uh, I won't mention any names, but it was because uh, a woman from the record company had come on the road and she was like, fallen madly in love with one of the members and was basically trying to stalk him. (laughs) So that was probably the most uncomfortable experience when a couple of the band members were coming to me and saying, can you help? (laughs) What what can we do? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was very bizarre. Wow. But that's the only one that comes to mind. But usually, after a while, the ones that kind of are awkward and difficult are actually the favorite interviews that I've done because somehow or other you get through that and you know that they're being difficult, but at some point they just suddenly get human, you know? And you just talk like regular people.
0: Yeah. Have, and have,
2: they tell, tell the story.
0: Have you ever stopped the tape when the guy is you, you, like saying nothing and say, look, you don't want to do this or you don't want to do it. I can walk away. I've
2: done that. Yeah, I've done that uh, probably twice.
0: Okay. i don't want I've to do that. Na- you can name names if you want. If you don't want it, it's okay. But- you
2: no, know, it's one where they were being so awkward. I just said, well, this is not working for me, and it's clearly not working for you. And, you know, if there's anything you would like to say, fine. If you want to call later, we can do it by phone later or something. That's fine. But, you know, I'm out of here. So yeah. it's probably a, a few, you know, and then occasionally in the early days, you get the other band, like, member trying to pick up on you. And so you kind of like let them know very clearly that you're going to leave and they say, say, yeah. you know, zip up and shut up. <laughs>
0: now, <laughs> I've like asked Howard and and Malcolm and all the guys that I've asked them the most boring interview. And actually out of the five of them, two of them had the same person, which blew my mind. Um, is there one interview that sticks out to you that like, oh, my God, this guy is just saying nothing it's so boring how am I going to get anything
2: out oh yeah I actually had one where actually I fell asleep during the interview and so did my tape recorder <laughs> I a double sleep this guy bored me so much I sort of like was embarrassed when I got up again. and he was still sitting there my tape wasn't working I guess the batteries just expired out of sheer horror and I just said I'm sorry I have jet lag I lied because I was living in LA <laughs> but <laughs> I figured he thought with an American, you know, English accent I might have just flown over because so you, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to upset them. But yeah, some are oh, terribly, terribly boring.
0: Yeah. Do you have an a, an interview that you can think of that you did with Kerrang! that you loved? You loved, Or do you have a favourite person to interview or a favourite band? One that oh, no, Even
2: a- I, do, I always loved Lemmy. I mean, uh, with Lemmy we always had, like, we, I did interviews with him on all the different sort of things. We did, like, long interviews, like, just punchy interviews little question and answers and when there'll be things like uh, Kerrang had this sort of section called In Bed With you know so you're in bed with Lemmy would there be a, a photo of you under a sheet with him or something and whatever it was it was all uh, be them talking about you know the first time they had sex their first girlfriend all these things it was really funny and, and at that I think uh, In Bed With Lemmy was one such moment but Really, just it was a whole stream of them. I can, can't really remember them. Guns and Roses. That was in the beginning. They were just so they were so full of energy and they were just so fresh and so cool. You know, this kind of kids again who had that New York Dolls look, but talked like they were punks. And they were great. And they were one of the bands that you know got into that state that you mentioned earlier, where you think, are oh, they going to survive?
0: Yeah. D- did you? Did you look forward to the English bands coming over, like Def Leppard and Iron Maiden? Like, did you really? Oh,
2: yeah. I loved interviewing them because, you know, I'd get homesick out there like anybody would. And and I think when they were on the road, they probably, you know, appreciated coming across somebody who spoke to them (laughs) from a British point of view once in a while. But like I said, the metal bands were always like total gentlemen and really good fun.
0: Yeah. Was there there one... I've asked everyone this, this question. Was sure. the one band that you really loved that you championed for the magazine and they never made it?
2: Oh, there probably is, but I can't think of who it is. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: That's okay. I, I've got different answers from everybody.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to know what they are because it may actually be something that uh, that well, will be on my list. You one,
0: one was Legs Diamond and Fiona Flanagan. Oh,
2: Legs Diamond were great. I liked Legs Diamond too. So. Malcolm,
0: do picked Fiona Flanagan.
2: Oh well, of course he is. Yeah, I
0: mean, uh,
2: he's such a gentleman. Yeah,
0: Derek Oliver. Um, Derek Oliver picked FM, an English heavy war band.
2: Yeah, I'm kind trying to think of who who I was. Like I'm leafing, I'm cheating here. and looking through my notes, seeing if there's anything here that didn't become huge. You know.
0: Yeah. I I'm sure. It's I'm, a hard one. I'm sure, it, I'm sure it is. Hard, that's why I ask it because I always, I nearly stump everyone every time I ask.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah. i to think. I was going to say Forty Five Grave, but I wrote them for Sounds. They were uh, uh, more of a punk band than anything else.
0: Yeah. So w- when when did you finish writing for Kerrang? And what made you stop? What made you move on?
2: You know, I don't really know. I know I was writing for them more often and under my own name when I moved back to Britain, which was uh, from LA, which was in 1984. And so I was doing a lot of stuff for Kerrang back then because that was when Sounds had an editor that, I you know. I didn't really see eye-to-eye with, so I slipped out of that in a way. I was doing a lot of stuff occurring then, and I still kept it up for a long time. I guess probably when I was doing Mojo, mm-hmm. I kept moving. I moved to France in, in 1990 for a few years, and I wrote a book on Serge Gansburg, wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came back, Mojo was about to begin, so I started being their person. But once in a while, I'd do stuff occurring. So, I was okay. doing it, I guess, all through the 80s before I left in 1990 to go to France. Yeah, I was I'm probably doing bits long distance as well.
0: Yeah, I was trying to figure out when you stopped because you know, you look on the Wikipedia and it says '84, '85, and I'm thinking, no, I remember your name being in Kerrang when I started buying it.
2: Yeah, I've got it wrong, whoever put that up. Yeah, I was, do- I was probably doing it right until the end of the decade before when I went to uh, when I went out to France. So that would have been at the end of the 80s. But every now and then they'll ask me to do something for them, you know, just so I'm still kind of on their occasional contributor list.
0: So did you interview um, the trash metal bands at all? Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax. Did you get to talk to those guys?
2: Um, I interviewed them all, yes. I wasn't uh, the biggest champion of them in the beginning. I actually knew Lars. Uh, Lars used to hang out at my place in Laurel Canyon and... uh, you know, that's why I use the name Laura Canyon for, you know, clearly I wasn't <laughs> wanting to think that day since another day like today, really. And, um, so, uh, I knew them and he was a huge, uh, new wave of British heavy metal fan. So he would go through my dustbins and filing cabinets and find photos and press releases and steal them. You know, yeah. he would ask, actually he said, can I have this? And he gave me a tape of the band that was his little garage band, literally in the garage in Orange County. And, uh, I listened to it and I was like, mm, don't really hear it," but I passed it on to somebody. I think it was at Metal Blade Records, and you know, they, they did you know perfectly well without my input. But we did interviews a lot, you know, over time. I'm yeah. still very fond of them.
0: Yeah. Did you talk to Dave Mustaine at all?
2: I did. He was a bit awkward. I heard. But,
0: I've heard that for over the you. I've heard that from a few people. That if you got him on the right day, he was fine, and if you didn't, he was trouble.
2: That's right. It's funny, actually. I, I did a big interview just recently, in recent months, with Lars uh, for Mojo Magazine. It was a Mojo interview. And he'd mentioned how, you know, he'd take Lars home to meet his mom and dad, and that, you know, that everybody loved, I uh, thought he'd take Lars would take Dave Mustaine home to meet his mom and dad. And he was saying, that like, he was just so charming. And I was going, no. <laughs> Dave Mustaine, charming. I haven't heard <laughs> that sentence before. And he said, no, he really was, you know. And it was kind of funny, it was was a bit difficult. And yes, I interviewed Anthrax, we went on the road in Japan. That's what I call a really good league, you know, going to Japan for, and seeing a couple of their shows in different towns and and hanging with them. See ya.
0: Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever go to any of the Rock in Rio's? Was that the only, was that the biggest trip they sent you on was Japan? I guess
2: it probably was, yeah. I'd never went to Rock in Rio, no.
0: Okay. Um, just a, a couple of final questions before I let you go, Sylvie. Sure. Um, the best gig you ever saw and the worst gig you've ever seen. Do you have any that stick? Oh on?
2: my lord! I can't possibly think of that in the spot. <laughs> best of, no, I'm 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 drawing a blank. You can call back later and I can try and think of it. But yeah. the best, I don't know. I'm, I
0: know. I know there was probably so many.
2: Exactly. I mean, it's just one big. A big panoply of gigs, so eh. yeah. it probably was one of those secret ones, you know. Where I kind of, I know Aerosmith played the Marquee or something. It was probably something that was really, you know, like that, you know.
0: Okay.
2: You, I, I can't think of it. Sorry. Were you,
0: were you at the Marquee
2: show for Guns and Roses?
0: Were you? Yeah. Or you, oh, you were at that show?
2: Yes, I was.
0: Okay, that must have been pretty special.
2: Yep, I'd become friendly with their manager, and so uh, I got sort of brought over which was great
0: yeah yeah so anyway Sylvie I'm going to leave you go you've, you've given me enough of your time it's been an absolute thank pleasure thank you so much
2: here. I hope that was helpful I was being no, no. a bit vague today it's like we're having a heat wave so my brain's kind of turned no, I'm, into mush. I'm, my...
0: I'm actually just outside of Boston so it's probably <laughs> 90 degrees here
2: oh you got it too you know in San Francisco we're used to freezing so it's <laughs> a little bit odd but yeah I mean if it's, it's all too crappy do feel free to call back and I can maybe you know look no, no, a couple been... of things up or, or email me or message me and let me know what you need me to look up and I can probably no,
0: no, look in my little book been... and tell you. Oh, d- yeah, be. I do have one question. Do you keep in touch with any of the old writers from crying at all?
2: Am I in touch with, I mean, yeah, email touch with Malcolm Dunn quite a bit here and there. You know, we just get in touch every few months, I guess, and see how we each other are. Yeah. Haven't been in touch with Jeff for a while and, uh, or Derek. I mean, but, you know, we've kind of, you know, we're in different countries and, we don't really do much work together, but I don't think there was any real falling out with any of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did 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 you think when you were writing for the magazine that it was it had a lot of power? I've asked this to Malcolm. He said no, and I'm thinking you you did have a lot of power at the time. There wasn't many heavy metal magazines out.
2: There. You Yeah, know, in the beginning, I think you know it was it was meant to appeal to a certain core of people. I think, and not so. Sure, I mean, uh, clearly, if you get hold of Jeff, he will tell you. You know the fact of calling it Kerrang, which looked like it might possibly be something you buy at Ikea, you know I mean yeah. nobody knew what Kerrang was, that it was a sound of a chord, kind of added a sort of comic element to it that only the true aficionados could get. you know you had to be not ashamed to write the Kerrang. And I think that because of that in in the beginning it was you know certainly taken seriously by the writers, but as well, it was just this in Great excuse to be able to just go on and on about the bands that you you really were getting into, you know.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have any musician after you wrote for Kerrang? Say, oh, Sylvie Simmons. I remember reading you writing in features for Kerrang. I mean, I oh yeah. You. It happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get,
2: I get that a lot. It sounds and Kerrang. You know, you get that quite a bit.
0: That must be a nice compliment. I
2: used to read you in Sounds, and you're trying to think, no, I'm not that old. Really. <laughs>
0: Don't say that. <laughs> That's a nice compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think Sylvie, that's a nice way to end the interview. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: And to you too. And I'm sorry, I'm a bit vague as I say. No, my head no. today is it needs more caffeine, and I <laughs>
0: just rushed
3: in.
2: But please, if you think it's crap and you need something else extra, just just drop me a line and uh, we'll no, no. set up another it's, it's time. Been,
0: it's been great. It's been great talking to you. All right.
2: Take All right. Care. Take care. Good the rest with of it.
0: the day. All right. Thank you very
1: much. Bye. Bye. And there you go, Richie's talk with the one and only Sylvie Simmons. You want to find out more about Sylvie, you can go up to her website, sylviesimmons.com. That one's pretty easy, right? And uh, always keep an eye on that if you're interested in finding out uh, any of her live appearances. She's got a uh, section on that website where you can find out where she's on tour, doing a lot of dates all the time going out talking about her books playing a little ukulele and regaling people with stories probably just like what she talked about with richie on this episode and of course big thanks to sylvie for taking so much time out of her busy san francisco day to talk to richie not once but twice and as i talked about earlier in the episode not sure whether we're going to bring part two to you next week or at a future date but again Part 2. More great stuff just like this one. So, obviously, you've got a lot to look forward to there. And if you're thinking, oh, what can I do between now and listening to that? Well, of course, more great episodes on the way from us here at Focus on Metal. But also, if you want, you can go up to FocusOnMetal.net and hit up the episodes page, and there is uh, well over five years worth of Focus on Metal for you to listen to there. So, always great stuff you can find there. And if that is yet still not enough, then you can go to earpeeler.com and you may uh, find even uh, your new favorite show up there on Earpeeler because they do all the work for you going out onto the web and aggregating all the great shows that are out there for, uh, for hard rock, metal music in general and just putting in one spot so once again you can find all that over at our friends at earpeeler.com But as far as Focus on Metal for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, until we talk to you again next week, have yourselves a great one. And as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. (sighs)